Welcome to the third EBVMA podcast. My name is Eric Fossack. I'm an active participant in the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medic Medicine Association. Um, I'm today with two great critical care specialists, um, and we're here to talk about developing clinical questions. Um, I'd like to introduce um, our first guest who's going to actually talk about the development of the clinical questions, uh, Dr. Dan Fletcher. Dan or Daniel? Dan, please. All right, all right Dan, please. Okay, sorry. <laughs> only my mother calls me Daniel and only when I'm in trouble. <laughs> Well, you're in no trouble today. As a matter of fact, we have immense gratitude for you coming in and uh, talking about this. Well, at least virtually coming in. Uh, we're doing this interview via Skype. Uh, Dr. Dan Fletcher um, is over at Cornell University and uh, one of the figures that spearheaded one of the largest evidence-based projects in veterinary medicine, the Recover Project. And it's just a real honor and privilege to have you uh, here today. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Eric. I'm excited to be here. I also have Dr. Shap Pratt over here at Wheat Ridge uh, Animal Hospital and. Um, um, Wheat Ridge. Wheat Ridge. Yeah. <laughs> easy, easy one there to keep it. <laughs> right? I get confused on the one that's actually, it's named after the town. Um, so at any rate, uh, Dr. Shaprad is also a specialist in uh, emergency and critical care. Um, and he's here for our discussion portion after Dr. Dan talks about uh, uh, how to develop these uh, clinical questions. And it's a real privilege and honor to have him with us as well. Um, you. you know, again, thank you for coming in and taking time out. No problem. Thank you for, for having me. All right, so, uh, Dan, what we've got is the 10-minute challenge for you. This is something that we've put poor uh, Dr. Uh, Brennan McKenzie and uh, Dr. Robert Larson through, and now it's your turn to run the gauntlet and talk about developing clinical questions in 10 minutes. How are you feeling? I feel great. Um, I'll keep an eye on the clock, I promise. <laughs> um, so I think when we undertook the Recover project, our first step was obviously to identify the questions we wanted to answer. Uh, we thought that would be easy, and it turns out that that's one of the most difficult parts of the process of actually trying to answer any kind of clinical question in an evidence-based way is to actually ask a question that's answerable, that's robust, that makes it easy to do a search, um, and all, all of those aspects of those questions are, are really important. It's very easy, we learn, to write bad questions, and uh, as this process has moved on, Beyond the first round of recover, as we're starting now, our second round of recover, we're recognizing that we potentially didn't do such a great job the first time around with the questions and are, are working hard to try to correct that this time. So we use the PICO format uh, for our questions for recover. That's pretty much a standard, I'd say, for people doing evidence-based medicine work these days. Uh, and it's a, it's a framework to allow you to develop a question that is easy to answer, and it forces you to be pretty specific with your question, and I think that's that's really the first step is really figuring out specifically what are you trying to ask because it's, it's very easy to get distracted by a question that doesn't necessarily target the, the thing you're actually trying to answer. So I'll just sort of step through what PICO means and how we apply it and, and some of the pitfalls I think that we come across when we try to do these, write these questions for, for these evidence-based uh, analyses. So PICO, P-I-C-O, again, just, a, just an acronym used to guide your production of these questions. So the first letter is P, um, and that stands for, for the patient or the population um, for most clinically-based questions. And we're going to focus on intervention questions right now because uh, I think that's what most people are looking at. So the patient or the population has to be very clearly described, and I think uh, you would think that would be easy, and yet it's not because we see patients that have a wide range of, of different types of, of backgrounds and pathologies, and if you have a specific clinical question you want to ask, your first question is, what is that patient population you're interested in? So when we were doing the Recover Project, most of our questions were in dogs and cats with cardiopulmonary arrest. 
Um, and you would think that that would be pretty straightforward and, and easy. Um, and yet, the question is, what does cardiopulmonary arrest mean? And how many minutes of cardiopulmonary arrest? And is it patients that have arrested de novo? Is it patients who arrested and then came back and then re-arrested? And, and it turns out that all of those things can affect your evaluation, your evidence evaluation. So, um, so really sort of thinking very clearly, what is the patient population of interest and, and what are the circumstances under which they would be included in your search is going to be time well spent. Um, so really sort of tightening that up as much as possible. The I stands for the intervention, um, and that's the actual clinical intervention you want to investigate. That may be a drug therapy. Um, it may be some type of device you're using on a patient. Um, but again, really tightly and, and clearly defining what that intervention is so that you, when you do your, your search, you know exactly what you're looking for. So um, interventions like antibiotics, say, are, are probably not good for PICO questions um, because it's just too broad and there are too many types of antibiotics. So if you're asking a PICO question, I would argue that in most cases, maybe not all cases, but in most cases, you want to be very specific about what drug, not a class of drug necessarily, but I would argue a specific drug is probably where you want to start. And if you want to ask questions about different drugs in that category, then you probably should have separate PICO questions for each of those because otherwise when you sort of try to put all of this together to come up with a recommendation, it can be very challenging if one antibiotic in that class has a beneficial effect and another doesn't, you've sort of destroyed the whole point of doing a PICO question, which is to get a specific answer to a specific question. Um, so really trying to tighten up your intervention, I think, is, is important and picking something very specific and recognizing that it may mean that you have to answer multiple PICO questions to get the information you need. Um, the C is the comparison or comparator group that you want to investigate. Um, and this is also not necessarily as simple as, as it might appear. So in many of our questions for recover, it was um, dogs and cats without cardiopulmonary arrest. Um, but, you know, is a, dog in, is a dog or a cat uh, with underlying heart disease the same as a dog or a cat without underlying heart disease if you're looking at it as a comparator group? Um, so really thinking, you know, am I looking, do I really want my comparator group to be very, very normal, control, healthy animals? Um, do I want patients who are very similar to the group that is in my patient population, maybe has the same disease process, but isn't having the intervention? You know, what exactly is your control group? Um, so really thinking about that, I think, is important. Uh, again, it depends on what your question is and, and what you're trying to answer. But being very specific about that, I think, is, is going to be important in terms of trying to come up with a question that you can actually answer. Um, and then the last part of the uh, PICO question is the outcome. That's what the O stands for. And this is where, in the Recover Initiative, we kind of messed up big time. So I'm going to try to um, help everybody listening to this try to avoid some of the errors that we made, because I think we, we managed to come up with a lot of questions that were quite weak because we weren't very specific with our outcomes. Um, especially if you're trying to take a lot of studies and, and really come up with consensus across all those studies about what they show, if you have a lot of different outcomes that are being assessed in those different studies, it's very difficult to pool the data across all of those studies. So um, for many of our PICO questions, um, our outcome was return of spontaneous circulation. For some of them, it was survival at 30 days. For some of the questions we wrote, um, we had return of spontaneous circulation, or survival to 30 days, or survival to discharge from hospital. We had all of these sort of strung together in one outcome. Um, and you know, all of those outcomes are important, but I think the problem with putting them all into one PICO question is if you do one literature evaluation for a PICO question that has three or four different outcomes, 
it's very, very difficult to, to try to tease out exactly what, what you can say as an answer to that question if you don't know, if you don't have very clearly defined what that outcome was. Um, and this is something that we're working on now for Recover 2.0, really trying to, to tighten these up. And we're recognizing that we have to split some of these out. Um, when we do our evidence evaluation, every individual outcome is going to have a separate process associated with it. So we'll review, you know, when we review papers, it will be, if we're thinking about, say, the three big outcomes that we think about are our return of spontaneous circulation, survival to discharge, and survival at 30 days. So most of our questions will have all three of those outcomes. And when it comes time to actually do the evidence evaluation for each paper we read, we have to think about what it says about each of those outcomes independently. So we have to answer a series of questions about that same paper, but for each of those different outcomes, if it looks at all of those outcomes, because some papers will be very well designed for, say, return of spontaneous circulation, and then maybe they didn't do such a good job at the 30-day follow-up. And so we can draw a lot of information from that paper for, for return of spontaneous circulation, but we're going to have to downgrade it when it comes to looking at 30-day survival. And if we have it all as one big question, we can't sort of differentiate those two different impacts um, in terms of the outcome in that, in that patient. Um, so I think being very, very specific with your outcomes is, is important. And, and again, it may mean that you're going to have to write multiple PICO questions and then evaluate the literature that you pull for those questions separately for each of those outcomes. So uh, I think the big take-home message you may be hearing from me is when you, write, when you sit down to write a PICO question, you may find yourself writing multiple PICO questions um, and coming to the very sad realization that you have about three or four times as much work to do as you thought you did because you're going to have to evaluate each of the papers you read in the context of each of those separate PICO questions so that you can grade the evidence appropriately. So I think that's sort of a, a general background on, on how to write PICO questions and, um, and what's involved in them. Um, so I'm happy to talk about that with you guys. Dan, that's a fantastic job, and uh, you, you did that almost perfectly on 10 minutes. Um, so, you know, I think... Um, one of the questions I have that, that came up, um, and I, I see Dr. Schaap leaning forward. He's ready, he's ready for this for some questions as well. But one of the questions I had for you, too, is like, yeah, the comparison. It's one of the things I notice a lot of people um, um, often kind of getting confused on in terms of, you know, like a lot of people think comparison, you know, they're used to those placebo trials. Like, you know, I think of comparison, like, for instance, drug interventions. You know, does Elfaxlone... Uh, reduce cardiovascular or cause cardiovascular changes to the same degree as propofol or does it cause more hypotension or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people think of it as a placebo. Well, compared to a placebo, this works great. Well, we don't use a placebo. Um, you know, it has to be realistic to the clinical scenario you're in. Um, do you have any thoughts on that when you're talking about comparators? Like, what did you guys end up deciding when you were talking about cats with um, you know, do you pick ones that are closer to your to your animals about to have CPA or, or cardiopulmonary arrest, or do you choose the normal population? Yeah, so it's a great question, and it's a difficult one to answer. Um, so for the first round of Recover, uh, we had very, like I said, unfortunately our questions are a little bit embarrassing when I look back on them now because they were they were very generally posed. And so we were when we were evaluating the literature, we had lots of different studies that had different comparators, and then we had to somehow try to come up with a summary answer to the question of whether you know, the intervention actually worked, understanding that we, were, we had all these different comparators, and it became very subjective because of that. So 
Um, so I've become a fan of trying to figure out ways to, to really be much more specific with the comparator groups. Um, and I think how that works is going to depend very much on the question. So in the context of CPR, the good news is that um, you know comparator groups in CPR are almost never going to be healthy animals. It doesn't really make sense to say, is epinephrine more effective in dogs and cats with cardiopulmonary arrest than it is in animals that don't have cardiopulmonary arrest? Well, obviously, you know, that's not, gonna, that's not a very fair comparison. Um, hopefully, the ones that don't have cardiopulmonary arrest are going to do better. So really sort of thinking about, um, about what that patient, what that comparator group is, um, is important. And it's really difficult, even in, even in the context of, of cardiopulmonary arrest, you know, the out-of-hospital versus the in-hospital cardiopulmonary arrest, those are two very different patient populations. Um, and if you're looking at epinephrine in patients who have in-hospital cardiac arrest compared to um, no epinephrine in patients who have out-of-hospital cardiopulmonary arrest, it's not a fair, a fair comparison. And unfortunately, what we tend to do is pull all of the studies, the in-hospital and the out-of-hospital studies, and we look at them, and then we try to come up with a specific answer to that question, when in fact it may be very different depending on the setting. And, and again, that's why we sort of get to this point where you have to write a specific question and recognize that that may mean that you have to write multiple questions and answer them separately. Sometimes you don't realize that until you start to do your evidence evaluation. But I, I would say my advice is, as you're starting to do your evidence evaluation, if you're pulling studies and you're finding that your comparator group is very heterogeneous, then it's time to take another look at your PICO question and think about splitting it up at that point and then redoing your searches to make sure you don't miss anything important. Yes, as curious with that, Dan, I think that when I went through playing with and developing PICO questions, I really it came on the challenge of, you know, finding some overlap in between my questions and saying, gosh, when I go back to my population that I'm looking at, am I overlapping that into my comparison group and sort of vice versa and even in between sort of the intervention and comparison, sort of overlapping those difference in ideas. Do you have any recommendations on separating those out for us? Yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately a lot of that, a lot of that stuff, you're not going to realize until you start to do, until you start to read the papers, and you realize, oh, there's a confounding issue here um, between my between my patient population and my comparator um, population, and maybe I do need to split these out. I, I think you know, it's really spending time thinking about it up front, um, and really thinking about all the potential pitfalls up front. Maybe you can avoid some of them. Uh, but I'd say most of the big, the big biffs, as I call them, that we made in recover with our PICO questions, we didn't realize until we started doing the evidence evaluation. Um, and unfortunately, the first time around, I think the way we dealt with that was we just sort of um, tried the best we could to grade each piece of evidence based on how clean it was in terms of the, the patient population to try to come up with the best recommendation for that the best answer to that question we could. Um, now that we're starting round two, we're, we're very committed to not doing that this time, and, and use, we're using a different evidence evaluation process that kind of forces that issue. Um, and, and that sort of feeds into the discussion. So the PICO question is the first step, but then, then the question is, how do you actually answer that PICO question? And there are a number of different ways that, that you can, can try to do that. Um, and I think trying to be as, as precise and as, method, as sort of methodologically sound as you can with that approach um, is, is important and trying to make it as reproducible and coherent a process as possible is also very important. Trying to take some of the subjectivity out of it is, is, is key. Um, and so, you know, we're using a process, this is way out of the scope of this, but we're, we're using a process for Recover 2.0 called the GRADE approach. Um, and it's very, the, the thing that's nice about the GRADE approach is if you have your PICO question written clearly, if a paper 
doesn't actually answer that question very well, that becomes very obvious and you, and you downgrade that paper in terms of the strength of the evidence and it contributes much less to your ultimate conclusion, um, you know, the ultimate conclusion that you draw about your paper. So by being very diligent about that and, and being honest with yourself as you rate the strength of a paper, that you make sure that you identify, well, okay, this, this comparator population in this paper wasn't really what I was looking for. And so I'm not gonna take the result of this paper, you know, I'm not gonna rank it as strongly as I am this other paper over here that actually had the comparator group that I, that I think is important um, will help. You know, using something very methodologically sound like that really helps. And I think that's great because it kind of leads back to um, what Dr. Brennan McKenzie was talking about in our first podcast. And the whole point of evidence-based veterinary medicine seems to be centered around the idea of um, alleviating bias and all that subjectivity you were talking about is one of these things that can kind of influence our decisions. Um, so grade seems like the way to go, G-R-A-D-E, and we'll put a link up on the website. Um, but that seems like a way to go to help alleviate this bias or make it a more... Uh, systematic approach, correct? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think the, the interesting thing about, uh, so GRADE um, uses a number of different metrics, one of which is bias, and I think, um, or risk of bias in a paper, and it's interesting when you actually read about it, it's complex, but um, but they've broken that down. Bias has a, a little bit of a, like a connotation to it that makes it sound like the, the investigator was biased and trying to get an answer, and that's not really what it's about. It's more it's more a question of is this study, does it have bias in it with relevant to your PICO question? Not that the study has an inherent bias to it, but that in terms of trying to use that as evidence to answer your PICO question, are there biases in that study that, that limit its power in answering your question and explicitly acknowledging that and then, and then rating it for that? So I think those, those kinds of systematic approaches get help you to avoid saying taking a paper that maybe has a large effect at the end of the day shows a big difference between groups but actually when you really look at it the groups that were compared don't really relate as well to your pico question as you'd like so you tend to jump on the fact that the p value was 0. 0.0001 um, but when you then go back and look and you realize oh wait a minute so this patient population this wasn't really what we're looking at um and so we have to downgrade it based on that. So, so it gets upgraded for this huge effect size, but then it also gets downgraded because it's, there's some bias in it that makes it not necessarily answer the question you're asking. So yes, that's, that's really the power of grade, is it, it allows you to take all that into account and then give the paper an overall score as relates to the, to the PICO question. And that was, I think, another important thing that we found going through the recover process was we would have papers that were listed for certain PICO questions and they would be given a low level of evidence or a low quality. Um, and we realized that we were upsetting a lot of people who wrote those papers. Um, you know, they learned that, what do you mean my paper is low quality? And I think the important thing to remember is it's not that the paper is low quality, it's that when we look at the quality metrics that associate the outcomes in that paper with the PICO question we're asking, we find that they don't match up very well. And so for answering this question, it's a poor quality study. Um, so the nice thing about grade is it doesn't use that type of terminology anymore. It, it moves more to risks of bias or imprecision, those kinds of things that make it a little less judgmental, I think. Dan, but at the end of the day, um, sometimes when you compare two studies, there are some with far more flaws in the design than others, right? Sure, yeah, and I think overall, the, you know, the grade approach also uses, uh, and, and in sort of the inherent design of the study, um, 
you know, prospective um, placebo-controlled randomized trial is going to get the highest um, setting, and we have none of those in medicine, pretty much, or very few of those. Um, but that's going to that's going to um, carry a lot more weight than a you know a retrospective observational study is going to carry. Um, but then, even within the studies, again, these the, the whole point of grade is um, that there are specific questions that allow you to assess whether studies have flaws, you know, whether they have inherent bias, whether they have inherent imprecision when it comes to evaluating the outcomes that you're interested in. Um, and so, yes, absolutely, there are studies that are, that are higher quality than others. But I would argue that in veterinary medicine, if we threw out all of the low-quality studies, we'd have very little left, right? So we don't, we don't have randomized controlled trials with 10,000 patients in them like they do in human medicine. So I think we have to work with what we've got and just acknowledge the limitations. And I think that's the power of a system that, that has a somewhat objective grading view. You know, at, at the end of the day, many of the clinical guidelines we developed for recover had relatively low levels of evidence associated with them. And at that point, we went back to the, the old standby of clinical medicine in both veterinary and human medicine, which is let's see if we can at least reach consensus based on basic principles and the limited, the limited data we have, um, and, and then explicitly acknowledge that in the manuscript when we write it. And I think GRADE just sort of takes that up a notch by allowing you to really give a much more comprehensive score to each of these studies. I think it's interesting from the perspective of, um, you know, looking at all these different qualities and um, uh, of, the, of the actual studies that are out there. It actually seems to drive people a little bit and gives them a clinical question that they can take out there, be it residents um, trying to develop a question to look into and develop during their three years or, you know, even an intern trying to develop that question. So these well-developed PICOs are going to give almost a jumping off point for um, uh, our residents and interns and, and those out there clinically that are doing research to have a good basis to develop a good study or, or try to develop a good study. So we appreciate the heck out of you putting all the time and effort into developing these, these important questions. Yeah, no, I agree. And that was one of the major, um, one of our major focuses with or foci with Recover was, um, you know, identifying knowledge gaps. And boy, did we identify some knowledge gaps. There are lots of them out there. Um, but that was, that was certainly one of our major um, efforts. And I think you know, we were lucky in that we had the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, or ILCOR, um, the human CPR guideline folks who are super helpful to us and very engaged in our process. They thought, you know, to an extent they thought we were this cute little um, group of veterinarians who were playing with dogs, but then they also got very engaged by what we were doing and recognized the translational research potential there. But, um, but I think, you know, that, that process of, of really asking good questions, and we had that ILCOR base to start from, and then we modified the questions from there, um, really identified a lot of low-hanging fruit. And our hope definitely coming out of it um, is that people will start to do more research to answer these questions because, honestly, there are a lot of really uh, probably relatively easy-to-answer questions um, that, that folks with time could, could start to get to the bottom of and really help us figure out whether we're doing CPR correctly or not. And that extends to all other aspects of veterinary medicine. Dan, I had a question for you from a library perspective um, because, you know, the, the trick, too, in veterinary medicine is, you know, yeah, we know we've got some gaps, but part of it is also, you know, we're not getting published at the same rate. You know, like, I don't think you see the same kind of NIH money going into it and that sort of thing. When we have highly specific PICO questions, what does that do to the search? It makes the search so much more robust. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so important um, from the standpoint of actually identifying the literature that, um, that, you, that is relevant to what you're trying to answer. So a poorly defined PICO question yields a whole lot of papers that have no, no real impact on answering the question that you're trying to answer. 
Um, so I think um, I think really starting with a and it's it's been interesting. So we we did not avail ourselves of the of the potential resources available to us the first time around to recover. We did all of the searches ourselves, and what we learned by interacting with Ilcor was that the, it was the librarians who really. Um, established all of the search strategies and cleaned up all of the PICO questions um, for the for the CPR the human CPR guidelines, um, and that's something we're very excited about taking advantage of in this next round of recover um, is really getting these people who's who know how to do this. You know, like a search strategy, developing a search strategy to try to answer a clinical question is a huge process, and you know, it's it's not just a matter of typing typing the PICO question into PubMed. Um, you need to be much more robust than that and really think about all the different ways um, that you could ask, all the different terms you could use to um, describe the same thing that will allow you to identify these these papers out there that you might miss because not all of them are indexed terribly well. So yeah, I think taking advantage of our librarian resources is so, so, so important if you want to do this well. I think, I think it sort of brings up an interesting point. Like you said, a, a well-developed PICO, PICO question is going uh, to narrow down your group and the, the sort of focus that you're looking at probably give you um, some less, less data or less information to try to make your decision. But you highlight the important part that that is going to give you clean data or something that is actually going to be helpful rather than leading you astray, sort of quoting a, a paper that is discussing bronchitis and trying to apply that to a tracheal collapse patient in particular or something along those lines. It helps to really clean up your interpretation of that information. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm thinking on this too, and, you know, I wonder what are some, you know, like if you could talk to Dan five, well, six years ago, I guess, or, well, probably closer, yeah, you know, five or six years ago, right, you were doing recovery. Mm -hmm. yep. um, when you were creating your PICOs, you know, like, okay, and I absolutely love the idea of utilizing library support, um, and, um, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, the Veterinary Medical Library section of the Medical Library Association actually has a whole evidence-based uh, support set up, um, but what would you tell yourself in forming the questions, like, what... What could you tell yourself to kind of, as, as, you know, like if you had to give yourself some key bits of advice, like just general advice, not to a particular question, but just general advice on how to make a good PICO, what would, you, what would be the key points that, that you'd really want to bring home uh, to, to Dan in 2011? <laughs> he was so much younger back then. It was so nice. Um, <laughs> Recover aged him a little bit. But anyway, um, I, uh, for me, the biggest sort of realization over the last few years for me about um, our PICO questions is the outcomes um, and, and the fact that we spent very little time thinking about our outcomes, you know, what really mattered to us in terms of outcome and, and the fact that we should really have split a lot of our questions into multiple questions and evaluated the evidence independently for each of the outcomes um, that we were interested in. So if you look at, uh, if you go to the ACVEC-recover.org website, you'll see all of the PICO questions out there and all the worksheets that we used. And you'll see every single one of the PICO questions, the outcome says something like return of spontaneous circulation, survival to discharge, comma, et cetera. You should never have an et cetera in a PICO question. <laughs> um, it's the perfect way to get yourself distracted and, and to not actually come up with a robust answer to the question you're looking for. So for me, it's it's really largely about the outcomes that we looked at. I think that was that was where we um, where we really went a bit astray, and what we're trying to clean up now. Um, and that's honestly a realization that we came to because we have a, a really amazing 
information specialist slash librarian who's working with us now, who was the key, one of the co-chairs of, um, of ILCOR, who, um, uh, who's uh, um, in Australia and has been talking with us and sort of working with us and looking at these things. Um, and she's, she really kind of pointed out to us the importance of the outcomes. And they suffered from the same exact problem. And when we, when we wrote our PICO questions, we basically started with the ILCOR PICO questions, and they were all written that way back in 2010. And when they went through the 2015 guideline process and used the GRADE approach, they redid all of their PICO questions and really tightened them up. Um, and and uh, I think that because of that, their guidelines are a lot more focused and a lot stronger than they were before. So I think that would be my my biggest piece of advice to just really think about those outcomes. You should be deciding before you do any literature searches, what are the outcomes that you think are important? And then you should list them all separately. And even if you do a single search, as you're going through and looking at the evidence, you should be interpreting that evidence independently in the light of each of those separate outcomes that you're interested in. Because it, it's not fair to grade a single paper across all outcomes. You really need to grade the paper for each outcome independently and figure out how much it contributes to your ability to interpret your results. I think of a comparison, and kind of sounds like, you know, like in taxonomy, they always have these debates of whether to group or split. And it seems <laughs> like when you're making a PICO, you should be a splitter, huh? Like yeah. the same, like have better to have five questions with very specific answers than one vague. With absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And that's hard for me to say because I'm an emergency guy, so I like to, I'm a grouper. I can't split out problems in emergency or my patient's dead before I stop thinking about them. But, uh, but I, in, this, in this regard, um, I think you do have to be a, a splitter to, to, to write good PICO questions. Dan, this was absolutely fantastic. And uh, again, I have to uh, really thank Shep Pratt and uh, Dan Fletcher for coming on, uh, talking about uh, probably, you know, I, I, you know, I feel like I should have pulled some great philosopher here because I'm pretty sure Socrates said something about the question being more important than the answer, something along those lines. But, you know, really developing an, uh, a good clinical question can impact everything else you do in evidence-based medicine. I think you've done a, an absolutely fantastic job of, of kind of demonstrating that, Dan. I really appreciate you sharing your time with us and talking about it. And, Shaf, I really appreciate you coming and sharing your time with us. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a good discussion. I think it's uh, very important. And I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about recover in this sort of big multidisciplinary process with hundreds of people involved. But, but this is a day-to-day -day thing, right? So I think if you're in practice and you're thinking about treating an individual patient, it's the same thing. It's thinking about that question that you want to ask if you want to do a literature search to try to figure out the best way to handle a, even a specific case write that question. The good news is that you have a very specific patient population and a very specific intervention you're interested in. So I think that this is broadly applicable to all of us in our daily practice. That's, that's even the best thing I've ever heard. A little encouragement for all of us out in the trenches trying to do this stuff. It doesn't have to be a hundred-man job, huh? Absolutely. Well, thanks for letting me join in as well. I've learned a, a ton from you, Dan. Thanks for, thanks for being so detailed and giving us, giving us a, the skills that we need to actually ask these questions and apply them to clinical practice as well. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. This concludes our third EPVMA podcast. Thanks for listening and hope you stay tuned for our next one, which will be about finding the evidence.